Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. I'm here today with Chris Gabriel, who is the host of the Meme Analysis YouTube channel, as well as the author of the God Disc Substack and a co-host of the Meme Intelligence Agency podcast. Am I missing any of your channels of production? I would say those are those are the the important ones. Okay, so they are all fantastic. Um, I've I've been a huge fan for for a while, and uh, you should definitely check them out. So thanks for coming on, Chris. Thank you for having me on. I think we'll cover a, a wide range of topics, but I wanted to just start out with getting a sense for for those unfamiliar with your project of of what it is and how you would how you would characterize it so as i understand it meme analysis which um i discovered on youtube a couple of years ago i think is the the name of it really is precisely linked to psychoanalysis um and is largely informed by the um theories of of both freud and jung as well as many others. And um, so I wanted to revisit uh, a famous Freud phrase, which is that uh, he understood dreams as the royal road to the unconscious. And it seems to me what you're offering is memes as the royal road to the unconscious in present times. So do you think that's a fair characterization? Absolutely. And it goes with a story that I often will tell to people who are like unable to grasp that. Um, it's one that Jung tells about a rabbi who's visited by a fellow. And he says, you know, why, you know, in the old days, men saw God all the time. Why don't we see God anymore? And the rabbi says, well, today, nobody bows low enough. I think memes are, memes mm. are that, that low bow. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. So, you know, the, the project, as I understand it, is to use this, um, you know, incredibly prolific kind of efflorescence of essentially popular and, um, shall we say, you know, um, largely anonymous sort of um, creative production that, you know, is, is essentially the kind of meme meme space or memosphere, whatever we want to call it, to think about you know, far broader um, trends and um, condition, you know, sort of, I mean, not, not just sort of cultural trends, but the, I would say the, the general psychic and spiritual condition of, of humanity today, even. Absolutely. They are those signs, like, you know, on a thermometer, you can read, you can look at the popular memes of any given time and you can tell exactly, you know, what's going on in that inside. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously we could go back and think about how Freud uh, understood himself as the discoverer of the unconscious in some sense, and that the way that he discovered it was by looking at dreams. Do you have a sort of narrative of your own discovery of this particular insight about the, the, the um, analytical value of this kind of 
sphere of creative production? It's a tough question. I don't know. I think memes, if they are contextualized in a certain way, like absolutely not. There is no discovery that occurred. I was just somebody who was able to recognize their true lineage. Um, It's no different from art analysis. You know, if you look at memes as art, you're just doing the same thing. Or if you look at memes as, um, you know, any, any spontaneous output that is analyzed, it's, it's not, it's not a surprising um, conclusion to reach. I just think that it's something that Jung talks about, you know, a symbol is at its most effective when it is totally unassailable and it's just not able to be critically thought about. Um, And I think memes are in that position right now. They're just, they're the most effective communicative form and they probably will be for a while. So I like, I don't expect the meme analytic project to be popular uh, because it would, it would entail destroying memes as, as we know them Um, or what I hope, you know, I hope it could uh, make them self-conscious, make more meme magicians who are intentionally creating um, these very effective symbols. Do you have a sense of the self-consciousness of the sort of producers of memes being a factor in their production? In other words, I, it's interesting. I, I interviewed, a, um, you know, one of the sort of premier like theorygram accounts um, recently. So I sort of got a sense of what he, what he is thinking when he is producing these memes. Now, I guess theorygram might be a somewhat, special case, but, um, is it, you know, how, how do you understand the, the, um, sensibility of, of those who are actually kind of involved in the, the creation of memes? Yeah, I do think theorygram is a special case because yeah, yeah. they just like all philosophers, they think too much right. uh, to be really good at it. So right, right. no, most people who make memes are not thinking about it. It means nothing mm-hmm. to them. It's just mm-hmm. spontaneous. That's the way I, like I used to make movies. And I would analyze them after I made them. After they were done, then I'd be like, oh my God, that's what that was. I now I get what I was doing. So no, meme people who make memes generally, if they're good at it, they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to maybe try to establish starting out was this term meme, as I understand it, the lineage of it goes back to um, Dawkins who is himself kind of something of a meme these days. Um, but so obviously it has a root in a, a, a Greek word, um, which is um, mimeme. So it's actually, um, it has the same root as mimesis. So mimetic and mimetic are, you know, different derivatives that you see used sometimes interchangeably. We can discuss whether that's correct or not um, today, but um so it, it comes out of this notion of imitation, right? And um, because that, you know, that's what the Greek root referred to. So there's kind of this extremely broad version of meme that is defined by Dawkins and then Susan Blackmore in The Meme Machine. And these were, you know, pre, essentially pre or early internet um, texts. So they, they weren't necessarily thinking about that they were thinking about just the general way that culture is transmitted. Um, and, and so a meme in that original very broad definition was any unit of cultural transmission, right? Anything that could be, um, that could be circulated, disseminated, imitated. Um, so that could be anything from a particular religious doctrine to a dance step to uh, 
um, you know, a, a sort of musical um, pattern or anything like that, right? A, a, a poetic structure, whatever. So memes in that sense is, you know, refer to really, you know, an incredibly broad array of things, just any unit of culture. Now, there's a kind of weakness to that account because it doesn't really, um, it, it is so broad in how it defines it that, and, and is also highly sort of parasitic on this, this um, genetic model where it thinks you can just take some understanding of how genes proliferate and then apply that to these units of cultural transmission. So anyway, that's, you know, how I understand the sort of backstory of the word and how it was originally used. Then obviously when we get to inter the sort of um, rise of internet culture, it, it comes to take on in a sense, a much more specific meaning, right? Which, which often is really just a, a very particular type of, of image, right? Um, which, which is usually a kind of found image that can be endlessly reconfigured, manipulated, et cetera. So, so we have that very broad sense of meme and then that quite specific sense of meme. Um, when you approach this, how do you understand it? How do you understand the term? Um, what's the scope that you sort of, that you sort of apply it um, when you're trying to analyze contemporary culture? So to me, I think the Dawkins definition is something, but I think that he's not getting at what it is, which is much more akin to Burroughs' word virus or image virus. And in that, Jung's um, symbol, symbol as, out, symbol as expression of archetypal energy, literally as alien, um, because Jung makes it very clear, as does Burroughs, that these things are not human. They're not from us but they come and kind of inf they are influencing us. They are things that take ideas, have us as is famously known. Um, so no memes are not like genes. They're far more like viruses and parasites much more. It's a, it, it's much more clear when you think about it that way. Um, when you, when you think of it purely as, as uh, mental genes, again, it, it questions like, where are they, you know, if it's mental, what is this shared mental space? And, you know, I would clearly say it's the collective unconscious that Jung saw. It, originally, the phrase was even critiqued as being too similar to archetype. Um, I think another important idea along with this is, um, you know, about like morphic resonance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is this, again, that, that idea, like how do these ideas spread? Why are they spreading? How do they spread? Um, and that I think is the real short that is the the short end of the meme definition is like what happens when it is reproduced without having been um uh viewed when it's not just an imitation yes. but it's it's you know spread purely psychically which does occur right yes absolutely so i think that's that's a key weakness of the the dawkinsian model right because it doesn't account for something that is clearly a crucial feature of culture, which is that you have synchronicity, right? That you, you have um, a sort of um, independent sort of co-evolution of, of particular forms and elements that emerge often near simultaneously in different places in the absence of any contact, right? So, so that's, um, that's a really interesting um, way to think about one of the one of the things that that, that model doesn't account for, 
And I'm curious, I mean, do you have, um, are, are there sort of recent examples of that that you've observed or um, that might, because obviously, you know, what's interesting today is of course the world is, is networked, right? So um, the kind of mimetic dissemination that we, we can directly witness now it differentiates us from earlier eras when, when you might have had surprising cases of kind of convergent mimetic evolution in different cultures that were not in any kind of communication with each other. So how do you see that factor playing out today? So whereas that synchronicity in the past occurred um, spatially, it was, it was uh, spontaneous over spatial distance. Today, we return to ideas temp- that are temporally distant. Um, and I guess one might make the argument that it's cryptomnesic, but I highly doubt it. I highly doubt that these kids, because listen, I'll give you a sad story that would tell me that the kids who are making memes that have an archetypal uh, significance are not aware. I, because I follow all these meme pages because I have to keep up and, uh, you know, keep my finger on that unconscious pulse. One kid, I guess maybe like 20, my age had never seen the Big Dipper until like a week ago. He had never looked up in the sky. I mean, we're talking about a generation and, you know, phone bad, blah, blah, blah. But no, legitimately, they live inside this kind of, you know, digital world. There is no um, culture. There is no reading. There was no storytelling from the parents that would have given the myths that themselves would reappear in these memes. So I do think a lot of it is spontaneous. I think a lot of it is just these archetypal energies demanding to be expressed. Yeah, and that's sort of a, a a really interesting feature of a lot of your work is the way that it it reveals that, as you said, kind of temporal synchronicity where there's a kind of um, endless recovery of these these sort of lost archetypes that that spontaneously reemerge in all of these different ways. So that's um yeah that's a really Fascinating point. And again, I think that, you know, it, it shows that there's a there's a deeper level of this kind of transmission, right? That is that is not just the the sort of surface level that can be observed of somebody posting something and then somebody else posting it and it, you know, it, it going from there, right? That, that there's some um there's some deeper substrate from which these um phenomena emerge. It links to a probably an even more mad idea that I find really fascinating which is that viruses themselves, the illnesses are, again, more like memes. They're not just spread through physical contact, but they, are, they have a spiritual, a psychic character as well. Yeah, no, this, um, I've been very interested in this in the past year, obviously, because you, what you have is this um, strange parallel unfolding of virality in, in this sort of digital space and the biological space and and the t- the way that the two interact in other words the the way that um i mean the the version of it that i wrote about recently was just that the it it seems clear that the way people are thinking about information is now deeply shaped by the sort of psychic impact of the virus itself but then the psychic impact of the virus itself is is an effect of the way that it was sort of transmuted into the the sort of information sphere and became memified. So so the two become uns- inseparable in that 
in that regard. And it inspires that that deeply fascistic cleanliness, yeah. like must we must, you know, cleanse it, sanitize it, sterilize it. Yeah, and that's that's been a, I mean, such an incredibly strong, you know, if if we think about the sort of psychic condition of at least the United States, but I think humanity at large, um, it's been, it's just been a remarkable um, and and remarkably rapid sort of spread of this, um, yeah, this kind of hygienic sensibility that um, that is now shaping all sorts of things, you know, far beyond the, the actual question of, of um, contagion, of sort of literal viral contagion. Do you mind if I, if I branch into a bit of a, a mad hyperstition that I think occurred? Please do, please do. Hy- hyperstitional magic. Now this is, this is the hottest, hottest take that I have at the moment, perhaps. Um, so I don't know how, how much you read conspiracies currently, um, but I keep up on, just like I keep up on the memes, I have to keep up on conspiracies to see what's going on in the psyche. So, and many of my friends do as well. And so we knew about the virus back in early January. I think maybe even in, in late December, we knew about it. And because it was being spread on conspiracy sites, there were videos of people dropping dead in China. And that was super um, significant because I think that a lot of the Western response to the virus was influenced by the conspiratorial response initially, because the initial conspiratorial response was, this is the end. This is the killer. This is Captain Trips. But by the time that the government responded to it in an extreme way, the conspiracists were like, this doesn't exist. This isn't real. And it's kind of funny to see because like an animal that's been uh, tricked, the conspiracist realized like my own paranoid feelings were used against me because it's an immediate shift. Whereas a lot of other conspiratorial turnarounds or revisions take a long time to realize like, well, this part was wrong. Um, Whereas this was just overnight. We were completely wrong about this. We were tricked. So I think the seeding of um, narrative in the future and as we are right now, will be done through seeding conspiracy forums to influence the wider collective unconscious. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it reminds me of something, um, something I keep bringing up on this podcast, actually, which is the work of Bill Cooper, mm-hmm. um, who in his career underwent a similar kind of reversal where for a long time, he was a ufologist, right? And claimed to have found these secret documents while working in naval intelligence about, um, you know, the true knowledge of UFOs uh, by the government and so on, and, you know, secret military projects. But then at a certain point, he flipped and claimed that, in fact, these documents were themselves conspiratorially planted, right, in order to lead people off the trail of, and and to basically seed this whole conspiratorial culture that would um, divert people who sense that something was wrong from the real story, right, which is the rule of the the sort of Babylonian Illuminati, right, and so he he underwent this kind of almost Copernican reversal, right? Where the, the very thing that was evidence of the, um, the real conspiracy turned out to be 
actually, I mean, turned out to be evidence of the real conspiracy, but in a different sense, right? Because it was evidence that the conspiracy went so deep that it was one of its projects was to influence conspiracy culture itself. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it, it's interesting to, to think about um, the, the way that, as you said, yeah, the, these kind of marginal um, uh, conspiratorial message boards and, and pages that were highly cognizant of, the, of, of COVID before anyone else. Um, underwent that kind of flip where where they, as I understand as I understand it, you know, came to see that itself as a kind of um, a, a ruse, right? That that had briefly deceived them and sort of diverted them from the real story. That's a great point about Cooper, um, and I think a lot of it comes down to like personally what I've been doing. I've been doing like a lot of the meme analysis work is focused on you know what archetypes are present in this given image this image is a product of this archetype. Um, And I've been doing the same with conspiracies as well. You can find the archetypal um, gods present in a conspiracy. So that kind of reversal is a coming to Jesus or rather, you know, a reversion away from one God over another. Absolutely. And this, I think leads into a a sort of theme, uh, uh, a constant theme of your work, which I, I think was the subject of some of the first uh, meme analysis videos I came across, which had to do with the, the Apollinian and the Dionysian as laid out by, by Nietzsche in the the birth of tragedy. Um, And, you know, I I believe maybe the first video of yours that I saw was about Pepe and Wojak, which very convincingly showed the way that, you know, again, these, these deep sort of archetypal, presences, you know, welled up in the form of these, these two iconic figures in the, in the meme space. Um, so, and just overall, I would say the, the manifestations of the, the Dionysian spirit seem to be a, a repeated theme of a lot of your work. So perhaps we could um, hear a bit about that and, and why you regard it as such an important element of, of understanding internet culture, but also the sort of, as I said, sort of spiritual condition of the present more generally. So that was, that was, that was the first like serious book that I read, I think was Birth of Tragedy. And at the time I was into memes. So it was kind of an, an, a very obvious connection back then. Um, but it has been a, a very definite recurring force because, you know, Nietzsche is still central to my thinking. Um, and part, so part of my, my reading of the internet involves contextualizing spaces and literally provide, you know, understanding the narrative that is latent in the language around them. Um, like something I've talked about is the, the internet as a literal web. Um, and I think that another important thing is the internet as a dark woods. And so in that woods, you know, obviously there are satyrs and monsters, and those are the, the Dionysian men, you know, wandering this, this digital woods. So there, there is a very, it is distinct because it is kind of a, a double D. It is a digital Dionysian. It is the Dionysian stuck inside the Apollonian dream world. You know, it is, it's not, it's not, they're not at concerts. They're not playing. They're not, they're not fucking. They're stuck in this world. That is why the energy is so 
present, you know, they're in the Apollonia within this realm, but they are desperate to express that energy. And I think, you know, memes are the way that they do it. So I once tweeted about, um, I think probably inspired by a lot of what I've seen of your work, the something closely related to this, which is that in a way the the work of memeing is, is a kind of, um, I, I described it as a sparagamos, right? Which is the, the moment of kind of ripping apart, tearing apart. And so my, my hypothesis there was essentially that the, the act of, of, of meme production is, is actually this taking of the, the sort of Apollinian dream world, as you said, the sort of images that are streamed at us. Um, and, you know, um, sort of taking it in your hands and sort of tearing it apart and then sort of reconstituting it in some way. Um, and that, you know, that, that was kind of how I understood this, um, the, the way that it's, in a sense, uh, a kind of um, violent um, sort of rebellion against the, the, the way that sort of culture is laid out to us within these sort of Apollinian frameworks. Does that, I mean, does that make sense to you as a... Completely. And I think that's the tragedy of the politicization of these people and of these acts is that like, this is not political at all. There's no, politics are mere aesthetic. It's, it's a purely, it is pure energetic action. There is no meaning. I mean, there's a deeper meaning, but there's no conscious meaning. And politics are too conscious to, to even be bothered with in this realm. It's just visuals. Yeah, and this this relates to something I've been thinking about. My my sense of it is that if you look at internet culture from let's say something like ten years ago, um, there one shift has been the way that it that it's become politicized in in a way that it to a large extent wasn't. I mean, we could talk about how, and I had you know I had Angela Nagel on, and we talked about um, obviously her book, Kill All Normies. And what's interesting is that in the early phase of 4chan, you know, it was really politically ambivalent in a sense and, and could sort of be all things to all people. Like it, it, you know, so, so these kind of left leftist academics could, could essentially embrace it and regard it as this, this exciting realm of sort of subversive fun. And so there was something going on then where, where the political battle lines were not very clearly drawn and there was just this much greater spontaneity to go back to something you brought up earlier where, and you know, you can see this in other things as well. Like I was just researching some of the early, like huge cancellations that happened on Twitter, like Justine Sacco. And there too, there, there's a real innocence to it. If you go back and look into it where, I mean, it's funny there, I, I dug up, there's like a, Don, there's a Trump tweet where tr- tr- Trump actually participated in the Sacco cancellation, right? And he said he was going to donate to like an African charity organization, um, you know, to make a statement against her racism, which is pretty fascinating. So, you know, there, there was something a lot blurrier back then mm-hmm. where, where these, um, there were just these spontaneous energies mm-hmm. channeling themselves into all of these new um, these new platforms, which were still not really fully sentient or fully self-conscious. And then something happened sort of in the mid 2010s, I would say, you know, you could think about Gamergate as one kind of maybe pivotal event here, where the whole thing kind of got plugged into the sort of political and cultural battle lines that, 
you know, had had long pre had pre-existed the internet for some time. And and in that sense, it I would say kind of lost the that sort of innocent, although often, you know, in the Dionysian way, sort of cruel and and sadistic spontaneity that it had, had before. And and those energies started to be weaponized for much more, I would say, cynical projects. Um, so I think that, you know, similarly, the the sort of direct politicization of it, as you were talking about, seems like, you know, also a moment when, again, the these sort of spontaneous outpourings of energy can be, I would say, quite cynically manipulated and channeled into very self-conscious political projects, which the people who are sort of essentially crowdsourced or, or sort of tapped to participate in this still don't necessarily know what they're doing, but there are people who are orchestrating it to some extent. Absolutely. And those are figures that I'm very interested in. Um, you know, who, who is capable of wielding the energy who, and who does and what entities, that's what they do. They utilize symbols to essentially enact their will. Um, and we're experiencing very similar things, I think. And even though they are political projects, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> this is simply the way that I think, you know, they are religious projects in their, in their ultimate way. These are not just the actions of a few shrewd political people. They are themselves influenced by greater archetypes. So that's why I think the internet is such a fascinating archetypal battleground, but also merely a slaughterhouse. There's very little conscious action. A lot of it is just a big place where we go and harvest energy, like the Matrix. Absolutely. And, you know, I obviously I think we can we can think about the Trump campaign as sort of a a force that in some sense accidentally stumbled upon the, the potentialities of that that kind of harnessing. And I think was never, um, you know, I, I'm not sure it it was ever fully conscious of quite what what it had discovered. Um, but so on the other hand, um, I was interested in some of your recent commentary on the whole um, GameStop, um, GameStonk phenomenon. And I thought it was interesting in relation to what I was just talking about, which was that that sort of somewhat more innocent and less self-conscious era when there was when there could just be this kind of, um, you know, this kind of gleeful channeling of energies that that were, were just in the process of being discovered and that, um, you know, were not really being being explicitly exploited or or manipulated, um, but but were just kind of coming into their own as a as a kind of collective force. And then I I mean I thought the GameStop phenomenon was interesting in being somewhat more politically ambiguous than is often the case in recent times. And you know, was was kind of seemed to me a somewhat positive development, even if just for that, um, I mean, I think there are other other ways to evaluate it, but um, the way that it, it didn't um, it didn't sort of re simply re manifest the the pre existing fault lines exactly. So I don't know if that's your um, assessment of it, but I'd also just be interested to to get your sort of overall take on it because you've had some some great um, commentary on it recently. Completely agree. And I think that's why you see the media attempting to capitulate it, attempting to define it politically, but it, it, people aren't falling for it. Um, that's the beautiful thing, I think. You know, it, So long as it is just apolitical enough, it can't be politicized as easily. 
and I, you know, you, you mentioned you'd watched one of the videos, like to me, it is aonic warfare. Um, you know, that the spontaneous, innocent, but as you said, cruel and violent energy is new aeon. That is the new aeon. That is the crowned and conquering child. It is the moral, political, the shrewd manipulation of those forces in an attempt to rein them back into old forces to reanimate the old. That is old aeon attempting to stave off its inevitable death. And, you know, we are at the, spiritually at that point in the procession of the aeons where we've entered the age of Aquarius, the new aeon, blah, blah, blah. And it's becoming clearer and clearer. And, you know, that personally is one of the ways I view a lot of the virus politic is um, an attempt by the old to oppress uh, the youthful energies. You know, the fact that the, the early, one of the very early memes about it was boomer remover, you know, that literally would be, you know, kill the old God, get rid of the old God. And <laughs> it's funny, you know, people now, now it's the opposite. Now it's, you know, we must prevent that because they're very easily set on their little desire course. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's really interesting. Do you, I mean, in terms of other, so I think, you know, again, the GameStop would be one kind of node of, you know, where there's a kind of interesting confluence. <clears throat> um, what, what other things have you been paying attention to lately that seem like good barometers or indicators of the current, um, the current landscape? Q thing obviously is very significant. Um, I'm, a, I'm very fascinated by ARGs and, you know, it's almost trite at this point that that is an ARG. Um, but what I've been saying is that I think that it's, it's one of the most, the fa- even though people are, you know, so stupid, it's a hopeful thing because Q is not a very good story. It's a very, it's really, it's, it had very little potential in the first place. But the fact that people have that need for narrative, that need for a good story, I think we live in the perfect time for new philosophers that Nietzsche talks about, you know, the people who will redefine and, you know, remake the world. This is the potential point where people can provide a narrative to really carry people through, um, Q is such a weak one. A- anything could have done it and, and everything will do it. Um, that I think is very good. I think, you know, better stories are going to be told soon. But it does seem that it, it brings up um, a similar set of, of themes to the, the ones you just related to the virus, right? Because it is, it's part of its galvanizing effect is the idea of protecting the young from the rapacity of the old, Right. That, mm-hmm. that there's sort of this, this narrative of, of these, you know, this kind of pure innocence that is being um, suppressed and victimized by this kind of ghoulish, um, you know, old order that um, is in some sense, you know, that, 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 and that, and that there is this idea that this kind of apocalyptic idea of the, the possibility of, of just wiping that away. Right. And, and beginning, beginning afresh. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. It's sort of a, it's, it's a remarkably, um, yeah, sort of weak myth in a sense um, in relation, particularly to how, how powerful and galvanizing it, it appears to be. I think um, but, so. To me, what I was talking about earlier, you know, the the gods present in conspiracies, that is a very deeply Saturnian 
conspiracy. You know, Q is the myth of Saturn. It's it's that old tyrant eating children. Um, and I this that has been a focus because that's such a major um, part of conspiracy culture is this Saturn god. Um, but I read it, you know, I read it spiritually, philosophically, and it is about the death of new potential. Of course, it, it's not just about it's not literal children and literal monsters. It is about you know old energy attempting to prevent new energy, and that's and that to me is the important thing. You know, I'm not, I won't deny the similarity, but what I will say is that that is a vulgar reading of something that is very basic and true energetically, you know, and I, that's, that's, what's interesting about memes to me is that there are these increasingly vulgar readings of something that's very basic to us, essential to us. Um, and I want to bring it back to these basics that we can tell better stories, you know? So this I think relates to your, again, your, your project, as I understand it is, is a fundamentally psychoanalytic one. And that, that also means that it has a a therapeutic dimension, if we want to call it that, which is that it, it's actually attempting to not merely analyze in a, in a sort of academic sense, but to analyze in a manner that um, helps us recognize certain patterns that will help us um, as your audience. And, you know, I think this is sort of a, um, you know, a natural thing because essentially the, the meme space is the space of, as you've talked about, of, of young men, right, primarily. And so my sense is that you're, you know, the sort of therapeutic um, dimension of your project is at least primarily directed at, at precisely the sort of producer and consumer of meme demographic, right? Which would primarily be, the, be that of young men, which is interesting because, you know, there, there's sort of a whole, obviously we could think of like Jordan Peterson, we could think of, um, I mean, there, my um, Twitter friend, Oliver Traldi has an interesting essay comparing Jordan Peterson to Chapo Trap House because they're, they're basically both um, different attempts to kind of create a, a sort of popular therapeutic project of some sort directed at this, this demographic, right? Um, you know, I, I sort of, I understand your project as, as being um, somewhat similarly oriented, although uh, much more interesting than either of those. I don't know. I mean, I'm interested in that, that therapeutic dimension. I'm also interested in this, this goes back to themes that we've brought up already about self-awareness, but it seems to me that there is a kind of dimension of what um, uh, Zizek in his first book, um, Sublime Object of Ideology, which was um, was uh, drawing from Peter Sloterdijk's um, study on the same subject, he talked about his cynical ideology, which is basically, um, you know, we might think of it in terms of like the idea of the irony poisoned young man or whatever, right? Basically, the 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 person who can't um, who can't take anything seriously, or who you know at least posits himself as as in some sense all knowing, right? And and you know, Zizek has an interesting um, analysis in one of his movies of the Officer Krupke song in West Side Story, where um, you know basically that you have these like hoods who are performing the song that's about you know essentially that, you know, one of them is being harassed by a cop and sort of says, oh, but, you know, my family, my, my family is a wreck. Like my, my mom's an alcoholic, like our, 
It's like our fathers are all our junkies, our mothers are all our drunks. Um, golly, Moses, naturally we're punks. So it's kind of this, but, but so Zizek's point there is that the cynicism is itself a, is itself a, a sort of defense, right? In a psychoanalytic sense, it's a, it's a defense mechanism. Um, that this posture of being all knowing, right? And of being kind of ironically detached um, is, is sort of the, the typical form of psychic defense in a, in a sort of late capitalist moment is that argument. Going back to the original point, the idea of psychoanalysis is that it makes you aware, it, it renders conscious that which was unconscious, right? That's, that's the basic proposition of it in its early phase. So when you have this, um, this shared mentality, which is, oh, we're, we're conscious of everything, we understand everything, um, that, that itself functions as a defense because there's sort of a denial that there is something that, that one is unconscious of. So I'm curious how you, how you see kind of breaking through that defense or how you see um, this kind of, you know, again, sort of quasi-therapeutic project um, addressing or, or in some sense like an interpolating um, subjects who are, who are in that position, right? Which is setting up this barrier that, that is this, this kind of aura of all knowingness and of kind of cynical detachment. That is where my own meme comes in which is memes matter. Simple as that. It's all it takes. You know, if you can recognize that, then you recognize I take in things. I don't know what they mean, but they influence me. They matter. That in itself is the anti uh, all conscious. Um, But the other thing you offer the perfect road I can take to explain my, at least how I think, because I, I am not a therapist. I have no interest in helping people at all. That's not my interest. Um, And you've got, in West Side Story, you've got Russ Tamblin, who is also um, Dr. Jacoby in Twin Peaks. So, you know, he started out as Dr. Jacoby, the, the psychoanalyst, ends up Dr. Amp, real entertainer. To me, it is an entertaining project. It is, it is an artistic project. I am trying to tell a story. I am trying to tell a good story. You know, I, I want to, you know, make the play the thing. I don't want to be the the thing. I don't want to be the character who is like, you know, this is, this is, you know, you need help. This is how you can get better. Like, even though some of the videos have had to do that, you know, um, sometimes I have to take on this like kind of boring master discourse just to, to speak to them in a language that they understand. But ultimately the goal is to get the story told and to provide a narrative that will allow them to just you know recognize what's going on, even if it's unconsciously. Um, you know what Doctor Amp Doctor Amp has the fucks, and they poison. They you know they do this and that, and it allows the the viewer to contextualize their own life. And this is essentially what I want to do. There is a minimal help, you know, and that, this is why I align far more with Reich than I do with Freud or with Lacan, which is, it's an energizing project, not a therapizing project. I want to energize the viewer. I don't want people who, who watch what I do to sit back and be analysts. I want them to move and to, to do, you know, to recapture that energy that had been wasted online and to do something with it. You know, I am not interested in the good, the, the happy at all. Yeah, and I think that that's also very um, apropos of the kind of 
you know, go to therapy meme, which <clears throat> is sort of, um, I mean, I talked about this with Gio um, when we discussed deck and in relation to the history of anti-psychiatry. And, you know, he was kind of pointing out that there, there's like a new sort of folk anti-psychiatry, which is basically, <laughs> again, it, it really comes back to this theme, right, of the the sort of old order trying to impose some sort of disciplinary apparatus on, on these, these unruly energies that are bubbling up. Right. And so therapy is, is one of the, the things that is, is suggested for that. Right. And so, you know, so part of the, um, the, the sort of obsolescence of therapy, I would say, and in relation to this, this kind of cultural landscape we've been discussing is, is that it's, it's clearly seen as, you know, one of these apparatuses of, of control, right? And therefore something that, that far from, from representing some kind of cure or, um, or way out is, is actually part of what you're, what you're trying to resist. So, you know, the, the sort of, as you said, um, sort of energizing and sort of myth-making project offers something very different from that, absolutely. That's why magic is very essential to the project as well, because magic to me is the antithesis of of psychoanalysis where it it recognizes it as true you know psychoanalysis is dealing with the same material as magic magic just uses it and manipulates it and plays with it you know psychoanalysis wants to control it and you know there's a great story and this is why I like jung as well there's a great story two boys one went to a freudian and one went to a jungian and the Jungian boy was doing much better. The Freudian boy, you know, he was no longer neurotic. He had a job and all that. And, you know, the Jungian said, well, he took away, he, he got rid of my demons. And the Freudian one said, well, they got rid of my angels too. And, you know, that is not, I don't want to take away any angels. I'm not interested, nor do I want to take away demons though. You know, summon them and submit them to your will. That's, that's the whole point. Um, in magic. Um, I've been reading Faust. Uh, we talked about it a bit. Like that to me is, a, it's a very interesting way to read like what goes on online. Like I think a Mephistopheles of the internet is important. Like somebody who can kind of go and laugh at like, look at what's going on. They don't, you know, but is aware of it. They're kind of playing and showing tricks that are happening. Um, that type of figure it exists only in a perverse form right now, which to me is kind of a satyr. The satyrs in the woods of the internet, like these kids who go on, go into the woods and get lost. The satyrs kind of like, come with me and I'll show you, you know, what's up. But they pretty much just end up getting eaten. They just end up in some monster's lair. Like the whole point is really just radicalize them, politicize them or sexually abuse them. That is terrible. Like that, you know, there is no, there is the, there, to me, Mephistopheles is kind of good. He's not, he's not actually fucking Faust. He's not, he's not messing up. Faust is destroying himself, but there is no kind of beneficent satyr who's just kind of like, this is what's going on. Do what you will. Um, as a maybe final topic, I was hoping we could discuss how all of this relates to a, a you know, very ambitious um, proposition that you've, brought up of telling the, the story of the internet, right? And I think, you know, it. I would, from what I understand, you know, sort of everything we've, we've addressed fits into that, but um, how, would you, how would you describe that project? 
It is. It is exactly what I've been talking about the whole time, you know, just how to contextualize the experience online, because that I think is what's lacking. That is the thing that we do not have. Um, we have a story for just about everything. And, you know, rec romantics recognize that that was a major problem about um, the Industrial Revolution is that we had stories for everything before that. There was a story for everything. And that is why we were able to essentially get by and understand that, you know, life had meaning. Um, today, there are no stories about anything, um, really. And the internet is something that's just so powerful, so important. It needs stories. Otherwise, you know, I really do fear that internet, the internet as a, as a neurotic, to me, something I've in this narrative, the internet is an Oedipal realm. It is distinctly Oedipal as it stands. It doesn't need to be, but it is. Um, the internet as an Oedipal realm must be understood and must be fought against. Otherwise, you know, we're going to have this just mass, mass generation of Norman Bates and, you know, just people who have left their body, who, who live in this horrific dream world. Like, I, I really do think that it, it is that bad. I think I see a lot of it. It's very, it's going to be very bad. And that's why we need a good story so that people can kind of see it as it is and do something else exciting and good. Um, so the internet as an Oedipal realm, I don't know if you've seen my videos about the concept of the digital anima. Um, she is the mother and the digital animus, who I view as kind of a minotaur, the digital father. You have these two figures, the one that rules the web, the worldwide web, then Minotaur in a kind of labyrinthine circuitry that is the internet, and both exist to eat children. You know, they exist to to consume energy. So that is kind of the Oedipal reading of the internet to me. To finish off, actually, um, I think it would be interesting for us to talk about a shared interest of ours, which is the influencing machine, which, uh, as the term comes from Victor Tausk's, I believe, nineteen eighteen essay called On the Origins of the Influencing Machine and Schizophrenia. So the influencing machine is essentially the schizophrenic delusion of a, a machine that can directly affect thoughts and physical sensations from a distance. You could, you could take it back further, but the first clear-cut case is James Tilly Matthews in the um, early, I mean, the last decade of the 18th century, but then the, his, the sort of story of his uh, madness comes out around 1811. So his, his influencing machine is a kind of, um, you know, steampunk industrial revolution loom, right? But that, that in a kind of mesmerist fashion, you know, sends out these kind of magnetic waves that can control people's minds and inflict all sorts of strange bodily sensations. And then it, it continues to crop up again in this, I mean, it's, it's a classic example of this kind of synchronicity and morphic resonance where, you know, you have people who are totally unaware of each other independently coming to this same kind of revelation and imagining very similar machines. And then in, in recent times, it it spreads mimetically in the more um, nor the more normal version, which is that it it's represented widely in pop culture and is um, is something that crops up eventually in movies and um, and so the you know today's um, 
probable schizophrenics, many of them undiagnosed, um, may, instead of elaborating their influencing machines um, kind of from whole cloth, um, they simply pick up the ones they find on the internet and, and kind of incorporate those into their, their vision of the, the persecution that they're, they're undergoing. Um, and of course, the internet itself can be conceived of in, in, this, in this way, right? Um, so I'm, you know, I, I have written a, a few things about this history and um, have quite a bit to say about it, but I'm, I know that you're also interested in it and was, was curious how it, it fits into your thinking and um, projects. So, you know, as you said, the internet in itself can be read this way. And, you know, Nick Land hits it on the head with that concept of hyperstition. His, which in on all honesty, is really just an evolution of synchronicity. Um, but the reading of schizophrenic fantasy as not just immaterial, but perceiving the future and manifesting the future. Um, you know, Jung, he was one of the very first to pay attention to schizophrenics. Um, he wrote about it in the psychology of dementia praecox. And he talks about how other doctors would say like, you know, you're wool gathering, don't talk to these people. You can't help them. But what he found is that you listen and there's, there's a complete story. They have a narrative. If you, if you understand the narrative and you can help them through it, you know, kind of through that hero's journey and there is an ending to it. There, there is a, a conclusive story that is being told um, even in the fractured personality, which Jung obviously adopts as the essential one. We're all fractured on an essential level. Um, but the internet, as I've talked about, is a decontextualized, it's, it's, it's a non-narrative locality. So it's schizophrenizing. It is fracturing the user. Um, so the fact that memes are like pretty consistently hyperstitional, it's not surprising. The user is already deeply unconscious. You talked about mesmer, but my God, is the internet not the perfect example of a hypnotic machine? Um, that was actually my first interest. I was interested in hypnosis as a child, then got into everything else. But hypnosis and aliens, I was, that was, those are my big interests. So like screen memories and um, the kind of things that aliens could do, it's all real. The alien is here as Burroughs recognized, you know? Um, word viruses, symbols, these energies are the alien. They are the alien thing. Um, but to me, the internet as the schizophrenizing agent and as the thing that, that destroys bodily integrity, that to me is the real horror of the um, delusion. Because I like delusions, you know? I think it's fun and can be good. The problem is when they begin to destroy the body, to limit the body, that is when it has gone too far. Like Reich, you know, some might say that his UFOs were delusions. I would not go that far, but um, they certainly weren't harming him. They weren't harming him. So I, I'll provide what I view as the real horror. This is the outcome of somebody who, who is absor absorbed entirely into this Oedipal digital realm is a gray alien, somebody whose head has detached from their body. They're cephalic entirely. They've lost their bodily integrity. They've lost their sexuality. They've, they've become sterile, you know, just massive eyes, things that are trying to suck away the energy. That's something the matrix doesn't really look at. You, you know, you have the, you have the blood bags 
you have the, the things that we're harnessing libido from, but what's the outcome? The outcome is, is gray aliens, you know? And that is one of the long lasting theories is that gray aliens are humans from the future returning to, to either facilitate their own existence or to harness um, energy from us to try to reproduce. I often think of these uh, outsider artists from the early 20th century um, who were schizophrenics, who were cr- uh, collected by people in the the movement, like the, you know, who, who went around asylums and basically collected work that was um, produced by inmates. Often they're really precisely what you're describing. And these are from a hundred years ago. There, there are these images of these sort of, um, you know, bodily drained figures kind of plugged into this network, right? Where they're, they have, you know, they have sort of tubes or wires kind of plugged directly into their heads. Um, and they're being, you know, they've essentially been absorbed into this, this matrix. And, um, again, you know, in terms of your, your points about the sort of schizophrenic hyperstitional vision, um, that those, those are quite remarkable documents of, of that, that process. Um, so perhaps we could um, wrap things up. I think we've uh, covered a, a great deal of ground. And you're at, again, meme analysis on YouTube, goddisk.substack.com, and uh, meme intelligence agency podcast. Anything else to plug? There was one more thing I forgot to say, and it's been, yeah. it's been topical for all of this because this is my, my magazine that I do mm. with my girlfriend called Aeonic Comics. Oh, right. And so we're very interested in these kind of high strangeness outsider work and the work that depicts what's going on and is trying to facilitate the new. So we're on Aeonic Comics on Instagram. Excellent. Uh, yeah. All right. So yeah, please, everybody uh, check all those out. You will not be disappointed. Mm-hmm.